Hello, I'm Joel McLeod. And I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. Last month, we sent out a tweet. That tweet advertised a rather ambitious project for us leading up to this year's provincial election. Roland and I had been talking, and we had hoped that we would be able to get an episode-long interview with each leader of the major Ontario political parties, being the Greens, the Liberals, the NDP, and the Progressive Conservatives. To that end, we reached out to all of their offices, and we heard back relatively quickly from most of them. We heard from all of them, except for Doug Ford's office. They are still MIA, and we're still waiting to hear back from them. More importantly, though, the other three parties had replied back that they were all interested and would very much want to participate in an episode of the 905er. Our goal with this was to record all these episodes separately using the same relative template of questions to keep things fair and to let each party's leader explain in their own words what they would do for the 905 in Ontario at large. Scheduling proved to be a bit of a juggling act, but in the end, we managed to get all of them except for Andrea Horvath on the podcast. Andrea Horvath's team replied that they would not be able to make it on at the 11th hour due to her schedule being too busy to accommodate us. We do reserve the right, however, to welcome her back onto the podcast at a future date, should her schedule permit. And we'll, hopefully that'll be, she'll take us up on that in the near future. In the meantime, the one thing we thought was needed in the selection was less hyperbole and more facts. Too often, rhetoric and sound bites take over, and most of us are left scratching our heads and none wiser in terms of making a decision at election time. The issues the 905 and Ontario at large face post-COVID-19 are very complex and require very real leadership. So to that end, we focus our questions on areas such as housing and development, the economy and the environment, COVID-19 policy, as well, what a little bit of electoral reform, as well as possible cooperation within the legislature amongst the various political parties. We weren't looking to create drama or to push back necessarily on questions or on statements made by the, by the leaders. Our thinking was that for half an hour, we would let them speak to you. If you don't like what they have to say, that's their fault. It's not ours. Now on that note, we present to you our first interview with Mike Schreiner of the Green Party of Ontario. Mike is the MPP for Guelph and the first Green MPP elected back in 2018 to the Ontario Legislature in the history of the province. As we head into the general election, the Green Party is looking to pick up more seats in the legislature, of course, many around the 905 area. We asked him how the Green Party platform would address the complex issues and concerns that citizens here in the 905 want to be addressed by their leadership and by the next sitting of the legislature. It should also be noted that this episode was recorded in early March. Please enjoy. Well, I'd like to thank uh, Mike Schreiner, uh, leader of the Green Party uh, of Ontario for coming on to uh, spend the next half hour with us uh, as we talk some of the issues that are facing Ontario and that and what he as leader potentially premier of the of the province would do to address them. So uh, Mike, thank you very much for coming on to the 905 or today. Hey Joel, it's a pleasure to join you and always happy to chat with people in the 905. Fantastic. Um, 
I'm not going to waste any more time uh, with with the small talk. Let's get into it. Uh, so, a recurring theme that we've been having on this podcast is that of uh, development and housing affordability. Uh, a big issue here in the 905, obviously. And how would your government, how would a Green Party government, approach this complicated issue and ensure that housing remains available and affordable to Ontarians? Well, Joel, there's no doubt that we have a housing affordability crisis in Ontario, and it's only gotten worse uh, under the current government. Uh, the Ontario Greens were very proud. We put out a housing affordability strategy last June. Some media outlets have called it a masterclass plan in solving the crisis, received lots of positive reviews from across the political spectrum. And I think it's because we're bringing forward evidence-based uh, solutions that really look at best practices around the world, but particularly in North America, that we can apply to the Ontario context. And so first of all, it's you know working with the private sector to increase housing supply within our existing built spaces so we don't have to pave over the farmland that feeds us, the wetlands that clean our drinking water and protect us from flooding, and just the, the natural heritage that just makes Ontario such a wonderful place to live. Uh, and secondly, uh, we recognize that government has to get involved in housing affordability once again. In the mid-90s, both the federal and provincial governments got out of housing, and the crisis has been getting worse and worse every year since then. And what the Ontario Greens are saying is, is we're making a commitment to build 160,000 affordable housing spaces over the next decade working with nonprofit co-op and social housing providers because we recognize that, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, sometimes there were years where 20% of new housing starts were, were, you know, publicly supported. And so if we're going to address particularly the deeply affordable concerns people have, government has to be involved again. But of course, we need to have policies in place that work with the private sector. And, you know, there's some parties in Ontario that say, Oh, only the private sector can solve this. And others say only the public sector can solve it. We're saying both working with all three levels of government. Um, a, a big criticism that we've heard from uh, average average Joe Ontarian is that, um, you know, municipalities aren't being consulted enough on this, on this matter. Uh, you know, we recently had the Ontario Housing Task Force report come out and it was heavily in favor of more development, uh, private sector development. How, how would you address that? How would, how would you work to, uh, to, you know, to keep, keep that, ad that attitude in, in mind, you know, to keep, make sure that all parties kind of walk away, maybe not happy, but at least saying we've been heard and we've been respected at the table. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the, the solution to that is, Look at how public consultation processes have worked successfully in other jurisdictions and apply them to the Ontario context. So one of the things I disagree with with the Housing Task Force is its complete disregard for, for heritage considerations. The fact that it seems to endorse the current government's sprawl agenda, paving over farmlands, wetlands, and the places we love, uh, and that it seems to dismiss uh, the public consultation process. Uh, you know, the Ontario Greens say, let's change the public consultation process to not only engage existing residents, but potential new residents, so we can design a pro process that gets to yes. Let's look at issues um, in ways that 
help increase home ownership as well as make uh, affordable rental uh, more available for people. One of the ways we can do that is to better use our existing built spaces by making zoning changes that make it easier for gentle density of missing middle housing. So things like, you know, duplexes and triplexes and quadplexes, laneway houses, secondary suites, uh, tiny homes, those are ways we can significantly increase housing supply while providing new revenue streams for potential homeowners, people who want to get into homeownership. Uh, and let's also look at utilizing existing public lands, for example, to provide deeply affordable housing, working with nonprofit co-op, social housing providers, building permanently supportive housing. And so one of the ways we can encourage municipalities to be more engaged in that is one, for the province to bring in the policies to make it happen, two, bring funding to the table to make it happen, and three, we're proposing that the province upload 50% of the operational cost of social housing that was downloaded by a conservative government in the 1990s, putting huge pressure on municipal budgets and municipal property tax base, uh, which ironically leads to less affordability in, in our communities. So we believe if all three levels of government can work together, we can build livable, affordable, connected communities where people don't have to commute hours just to find an affordable place to call home. Uh, and kind of my, la my last uh, question on, on this particular topic, uh, the Ontario Land Tribunal, uh, your thoughts on it? Does it work fine? Does it need improvement? Would you do away with it? What, what's what's your, your thoughts on it? Yeah, it needs a complete overhaul. I mean, unfortunately, uh, I was part of groups that have been pushing government for years to get rid of the old Ontario Municipal Board. And we finally succeeded in getting the changes we needed um, to reduce the number of appeals that were costing taxpayers millions of dollars in some cases and running roughshod over certain neighborhood groups because you tended to be more successful there the deeper pockets you had. Well, the Ontario Land Tribunal just essentially replaces that with a different name. And, and so, you know, I think we need to get back to good planning uh, and making sure that any proposal that complies with, you know, local planning rules and the provincial policy statement, you know, can't be um, appealed to the Ontario Land Tribunal because that's being used as a tool for particularly people with deeper pockets to get their way. And it completely undermines the public planning process and all the citizen engagement and input that goes into that process. Very good. Uh, now we're moving on to uh, our next area that we, uh, we know people are wanting to hear, and I'm sure this is well within your, your wheelhouse, uh, the environment and the economy. Uh, so, We've had on, on this podcast uh, prior, uh, twice on this podcast, uh, Flavio Volpe of the APMA uh, to talk about Project Arrow, which was, you know, long story short, trying to uh, make a made in Canada EV option uh, for the market just to prove that we're able to make those types of vehicles here in Ontario. Premier Ford has announced that his government is committed to making Ontario a destination for EV manufacturers. Uh, and I'm wondering if the Green Party shares that viewpoint as making Ontario an EV manufacturer a priority. And if so, how would the Green Party approach uh, approach doing that? 
Well, I mean, first of all, the Ontario Greens for many years have been saying that Ontario can be and is well positioned to be a global leader in the new climate economy and electrified transportation is going to be a vital uh, part of that. And we have all the resources, skilled labor uh, and knowledge and facilities to have a mining to manufacturing completely made in Ontario supply chain for electric vehicles. The problem is, is that we've, the current Ford government has been actively hostile to electric vehicles up until the last few months. And as a result of that, most of the investment in North America is going into the U.S. Last year, $25 billion uh, invested in, in U.S. EV manufacturing, $11.5 billion just as in the states of Kentucky and Tennessee alone. Ontario's only captured a fraction of that investment, and it's primarily because the premier you know, has made it clear he doesn't like electric vehicles. He ripped out EV charging stations. He canceled EV rebates. Um, he's been actively hostile to climate action. Electric vehicle manufacturers, they want to invest in jurisdictions where they know there's going to be demand for their vehicles, where, you know, people are going to be able to afford to buy them, where the charging infrastructure is in place to, you know, roll out electric vehicle fleets. And so that's why the Ontario Greens were both supporting uh, a economic strategy through a $5 billion EV mobility fund to attract investment and in not just in electric personal vehicles, but electrified public transportation and e-vehicles like electric bikes, e-scooters and things like that. So we have a wide range of electrified transportation supports for people. And we have policies in place, such as our $10,000 rebate uh, on electric vehicles, so people can afford to buy them. And I can tell you, you know, looking at gas prices right now going through the roof, more people want to access electrified public transportation, whether it's public transit, um, electric bikes, or our personal vehicles. And we have the plan to make it happen, which is going to help address the affordability concerns people have. And we have a plan to make it happen so Ontario can be a global leader. And one of the things that the Ford government continually uh, misses out on when it talks about this is, is in addition to electric vehicle, electric battery storage is a huge opportunity for Ontario, especially to better utilize uh, renewable energy systems, making them more efficient and lower cost. And unfortunately, the current government, you know, rips up contracts for renewable energy. So Ontario is losing out on a huge opportunity to be a global leader in the low cost renewable energy where most of the investment dollars in energy now are flowing globally, uh, because we have a government that's actively hostile to it. We should be a leader, uh, not a laggard. Um, so are, I'm, I'm curious to know about how, how exactly you're looking to fund that. I know the, uh, without going into our, our too much history, but we had the, the previous uh, Liberal government, they were going to fund a similar transition uh, uh, using the Green Energy Act, using uh, money taken from, from that to fund a transition. Are you looking at a similar, they were looking at a, sorry, a cap and trade uh, uh, method to capture, you know, to, to basically fund it. Are you looking at a similar option uh, here in Ontario or, or are you looking to just hoping to find the savings through cost cutting measures? How, how would you fund a, these, these rebates in, in this transition? Yeah, so we have a fully costed plan and, you know, it's very detailed. So I'd encourage people to go to gpo.ca backslash climate. But the highlights are, first of all, Ontario is the only jurisdiction in North America to please subsidize electricity prices. That's costing the province $6.5 billion a year. 
According to the Financial Accountability Officer, it primarily benefits wealthy households. We're saying let's put uh, a, a cap on those electricity subsidies and let's target them towards low and working uh, income households and to people who live in rural and remote communities and then take that savings and invest it in real solutions such as electrifying transportation. Uh, and so that's a big chunk of funding our, our program. We're also looking at um, utilizing things like uh, a levy on, you know, these huge parking lots that are out there that, um, you know, cost a huge amount in terms of uh, flood runoff uh, with, with water, uh, contribute to the heat island effect that's affecting us. And so why are companies getting a free ride on these? You know, there was a report done uh, a few years ago showing that just even small uh, parking levies would raise well over $2 billion a year that can go to things like climate action, ways to make uh, things more affordable for people. When it comes to electric vehicles, we've proposed a fee-bait program where you would um, put a price, uh, a charge on high-emitting vehicles and use the money raised from that to make electric vehicles affordable for people. And, you know, to me, those are like sensible solutions. We're being honest with people about what we want to do and how we're going to pay for it. Okay. Um, well, the, I, I, on today, today, uh, Doug Ford announced that, uh, he was lifting mask mandates on March 21st. So that, that gives you an eight, our listeners, that gives you a date, an idea of when we were recording this episode. Um, but you know, talking about COVID now, the four government, you know, is uh, also lifting. They've always lifted vaccine mandates. Uh, mask mandates are coming to an end now, um, and all this is based on the recommendations of Dr. Moore, Ontario's chief medical officer. There's a lot of nervousness and uncertainty in Ontario, not just in the 905. Uh, I'm going to put it bluntly to you, uh, Mike. Do you agree with Dr. Moore on his assessment of lifting all these restrictions at this point in the in the pandemic? Well, first of all, I think the best decisions we can make are decisions that are guided by science and evidence and by the best public health advice. And I think one of the things that separates the Green Party from the other three legacy parties here is that we base our policies on best evidence. Uh, science, data, and not on ideology or, or partisan politics. And so saying that, um, I think throughout this pandemic, the Ford government has really failed to uh, follow the science. And that's led to the fact that Ontario's had some of the longest lockdowns uh, in North America. And so I want us to be open and stay open. And we know that masks are a layer of defense that will help keep our economy open, our businesses open, our schools open. And so I'm deeply concerned that a number of doctors, public health officials, uh, hospital for sick children have all raised significant concerns that the premier's decision to lift mask mandates on an arbitrary date of March 21st is not based in science or data. I, on the other hand, supported 
the lifting of the vaccine uh, certificate system on March 1st because the science advisory table, the overwhelming number of public health officials and doctors said it was an appropriate time uh, to remove uh, the vaccine certificate program. And so I supported the premier's decision in that regard because that's what public health advice was. I oppose him removing a layer of protection that particularly puts children, immunocompromised people, and others at, at higher risk because we don't want risk to escalate because we want to keep our economy open. We want to avoid any future lockdowns. And the best way to do that is to follow the science, the data, and the advice from the public health community. Okay. I mean, that's all, all well and good. That's what we hear from from everyone. But I, I think what people want to know is what exactly we're going to do differently because the science community is saying we're going to have uh, another wave coming at us at some point in the future. It's Everyone has said it's inevitable. Um, right now, it doesn't seem that we have any way of A, knowing if we're going to be in a, another wave because we're not tracking the, da the data anymore. Um, we're no longer masking. We're no longer have vaccine protocols uh, in place. So my, my question is, what what are we going to what are you, what is your plan to go do differently? So you say hypothetically you're elected June second, June third. What what is a go green government going to do to say we need to get ready for, you know the the Omicron wave two or, or whatever else is coming down the pipe? Yeah, Joel. Well, the first thing would be to meet with the science advisory table and outline metrics that are clear and understandable to the people of Ontario that would guide our decision making and to set a goal for the province around those metrics. That is something Premier Ford has not done, has failed to do throughout this pandemic, and has led to really some incomprehensible decisions, such as you know letting big box stores stay open while closing small businesses. Um, and, and it's left Ontarians in the dark asking the exact question you just asked me, like, how would you make a decision or what would guide your decision? And so all too often, uh, you know, the decisions have been guided by what appears to be arbitrary dates or unclear rationale. And let's just be honest with people. Let's be clear. And, and I've said, particularly when it comes to lifting restrictions, like set a target, set a goal. If we meet the goal before the target deadline, let's say, you know, hey, we want to open things up on March 1st. Well, if we are hitting the, the metrics before March 1st, we can open sooner. If we hit them after March 1st, well, then maybe we need to delay a little bit. But at least there's a rationale there. There's a goal there. There's a way to have public confidence there that is based on science, evidence, and data. I, and on that note, what I, I understand all, all that. So what, what would you do to uh, rebuild confidence in, in our economy? A lot of small business owners are hearing that people are saying, I'm not right now. I'm not confident in going into a small shop or into a small, you know, into a restaurant anymore because I don't know if the person next to me is going to be vaccinated. I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to be welcomed into a place if I'm wearing a mask. Um, so, you know, what, what, so could you give us any idea, any uh, idea of what, what would a green party do to kind of help rebuild that confidence with uh, our small business community so that they can start making money again? Yeah, no, I hear you. And as a longtime small business owner, uh, I can totally relate. I mean, in you know what a lot of people don't realize is uh, a lot of small businesses have put on significant amount of debt. And oftentimes that debt's not only tied to their business, but it's also tied to their personal finances as well. 
you know, I, you know, a lot of small businesses, you know, remortgage their house. So there's a lot mm-hmm. on the line to make sure they, they survive this pandemic, which is why I've been a strong supporter of making sure we have the financial supports for them. In terms of establishing consumer confidence, it is vital and essential. And that is exactly why having clearly communicated, transparent, scientific-based um, data and metrics that clearly guide decision-making. Um, I mean, obviously, you're never going to have 100% of the population uh, feeling on side with the decision you're making because everyone has a different way of assessing risk, and they're going to figure out how they assess risk based on their own personal life. But if you can show the public, this is why we're lifting restrictions. This is why we're saying we don't need vaccine certificates anymore. This is why we're saying we don't need mask mandates anymore because we've hit the following data metrics. To me, that instills confidence in the public and makes it easier for people to go out and support those small businesses. And, you know, one of the the sad ironies of reducing the vaccine certificate on on, um, March 1st was I've had a number of businesses contact me saying that, their business actually went down after that precisely because of consumer confidence. And that's exactly why I wish the premier had said, hey, the scientists have said, we've hit these metrics, we can now get rid of the vaccine certificate. That would have given people more confidence and and it just wasn't there. And so that's what would guide my decisions. And then I've also suggested a few things like I'm a, I'm a big supporter. I'll be nonpartisan in this one. I thought the staycation tax credit that the conservative government brought in was a smart policy. It was something I supported. Let's encourage people to, you know, vacation in, in Ontario and support Ontario businesses. Why not increase funding for that and also apply it to the hospitality sector just to give people that little extra incentive to go out and, and, and support restaurants, for example, uh, that have been, you know, closed down almost more than any other business, along with gyms and a few others, um, just to help install that added level of consumer confidence. Okay, I'll I'll leave it at that for uh, for COVID because I think people are saying I'm done talking with talking about COVID, Joel. <laughs> move on to something else. Yeah, I hear uh, you. I so, hear you on that one, Joel. It, yeah. Um, one one thing we did prior to this, the these interviews is we uh, sent out. Uh, on social media, we asked a, a number of our followers to give us. We said, if you were to ask Mike Schreiner, hold hold his feet to the fire, what would you what would you do? So we're we're I'm going to go into the uh, viewer selected questions, and uh, this one was one I thought was pretty uh, pretty ingenious. Um, if the Green Party is elected to government, what is the one thing your one priority that you'd want to change to fundamentally improve the lives of Ontarians for the better after your, a four-year term in office is completed? Yeah, I would say that everyone in Ontario has an affordable place to call home, close to where they work, in a livable, affordable, connected community where they can live, work, shop, play, support local businesses uh, within their neighborhood. Uh, to me, that would address the affordability challenges people are facing, both from, you know, uh, owning or renting a home to the skyrocketing community commuting costs they're facing. And it would also help protect the farmland that feeds us, the wetlands that, you know, clean our drinking water and protect us from flooding. And, and it would significantly help in crushing climate pollution. And so for me, 
building those livable, affordable communities where people don't have to commute two hours to, you know, have an affordable place to live. Uh, that that's what I'm laser focused on right now. And, you know, after four years in office, I'm, I'm hoping that that would be, you know, a tangible, uh, contribution that would really improve the lives of Ontarians. Do you think that's doable though? I mean, four, four years, doable, absolutely doable. You're going to be picking a fight with a number of industries in this <laughs> province, let me tell you. And there are a lot of people who uh, who, are, who are looking at, who are shaking their heads right now at their car radio or their their iPhone and saying he's a dreamer to say that he's going to do this in four years. Uh, Joel, you, you, Joel, there's eighty eight thousand eighty eight thousand acres of developable land in the GTA already zoned for housing development. We need developers to get to work building those homes for people. We, uh, we know that we can make investments in helping nonprofit co-op and supportive how in social housing build affordable rentals for people because we've done it before. We did it back in the seventies and eighties and we built a lot of that housing quickly, uh, because we had government financing and support. So we've done it in the past. We can do it again. And, and, um, and I also know from speaking with municipal leaders, federal leaders, people, you know, citizens across the province, that housing affordability is the number one concern people have. They want an affordable home and they don't want the high cost and just lifestyle of having to commute two hours to get to that home. Okay. Uh, this is my last question for, uh, for the episode. Um, this was, and this has been a, a lot of people uh, asked about this one. Right now, uh, we're looking at the polls uh, in Ontario, and it doesn't appear that, uh, quite frankly, you, the NDP, or the Liberals are in a, in a spot to win a majority uh, government. Um, now, keep in mind, this is in March, and by the time this airs, it could be a lifetime, so I could be completely off the, off the cuff when this finally airs. However, the, the, the premise is still sound. So if you're in a minority government situation, would short of a formal merger with the NDP or the liberals, would you be open to committing to working with them on some core policy tenants? We're not, not minding the details, um, but just, you know, the, the core promise, like you said, affordable housing. So would you commit to just say, it may not be perfect, but you know, we'll push, we'll commit to pushing forward on an affordable housing plan with the liberals or the NDP uh, in a minority situation uh, it, it, that or any, any other policy platform that you're, that you're willing to, to work towards to push it forward. Well, for all, Joel, I, I'll take my uh, example from the BC green party that worked very effectively uh, in a minority government situation with the BC NDP. And, you know, it was unfortunate that the you know BC NDP government decided to rip that up early and go to the polls uh, because I thought the NDP and Greens in British Columbia were bringing forward a, a number of good plans. They got big money out of politics. They uh, put forward the most ambitious climate uh, plan by any province in, in the country. And so for me, I'm willing to work across party lines. I think I made a promise to do politics differently and to tone down the partisanship at Queen's Park and really work with other parties. And I think I've demonstrated that concretely. I mean, I passed a bill with a conservative member to support electric vehicle drivers, uh, even though I've been very critical of the Ford government's dismantling of the province's climate plans. And so for me, the three key areas, you know, I, I want to see uh, ambitious action on addressing the climate crisis. 
I want tangible, concrete results in addressing housing affordability. And I want to make sure that mental health services and supports are available and affordable for people um, as we shore up our healthcare system. Very, very good. I, I guess the, the the theme that we were hearing from people is this, people don't want to hear uh, the old adage, uh, perfection is the enemy of progress. Uh, and that, you know, because it wasn't the exact, you know, just that, that that willing to compromise, I guess, on on putting forward an, an idea. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, I'm seeing we're coming up on our on our half hour window here. Um, I'm going to say one. I mean, one final question because uh, I think I can sneak it in. We, we're talking a bit on electoral reform. Um, there's a talk of uh, wanting back when we first started this podcast, there was talk of granting municipalities the right to determine their own method of electing uh, uh, their, their city council members. And then the Ford government took, took that away over and un, unceremoniously. Would you consider bringing that back and allowing municipalities to determine how they want to uh, elect their council members? Yeah, I strongly believe in local democracy. I've been very opposed to the Ford government meddling in local democracy, you know, know, putting Toronto City Council, cutting it in half in the middle of an election campaign, taking away municipalities' rights to determine their own voting system. I think those were just inappropriate and heavy-handed intrusion into local democracy. So absolutely, I would, um, I support uh, municipalities having the option of using ranked ballots, for example, if that's what they choose, that's the best method of, of electing councillors. And quite frankly, I really am strongly supporting a citizens assembly at the provincial level to look at what is the best voting system to make sure that we maximize democracy and ensure every vote counts in Ontario. You know, I've been deeply concerned about a proposal the Liberals have put forward that basically says, hey, we want to bring uh, ranked ballots to the provincial level without doing the proper consultation without pe- with people, without having something like a citizens assembly, uh, without a mechanism that would have all parties uh, working together uh, through something like uh, recommendations from the Citizens Assembly uh, about something that's so fundamental to our democracy, the way we elect members of, to provincial parliament. And, but I'll be honest with you, my preferred system would be proportional representation because I think PR governments and, you know, look at countries like Germany, for example, uh, one, you have higher voter turnout, two, you have less partisanship in the politics Three, uh, the parliament, re, you know, reflects the democratic will of the people. Uh, and, and I think that's what should happen in a strong democracy. That's what I would like to see in Canada, in Ontario, to ensure that every citizen's vote counts. All right. I'll consider that the last word of, uh, of this conversation. So, uh, Mike uh, Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario, thank you very much for coming on to the 905er today to uh, share your 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 thoughts, your opinions, your wisdom, your your wit, <laughs> as it, as it were, and uh, all the best to you in the campaign when it when it hits off. Thanks, Joel. Certainly appreciate that. And hope everyone is engaged and informed uh, because this will be an important provincial election. Okay. That's 
that's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Did, Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.